1: To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, visit SixthSense.com.
0: This particular one came to our attention via some spam messaging.
1: That's Richard Hummel. He's the threat intelligence manager for Arbor Network's ACERT team. The research we're discussing today is titled "Input Actors Utilize Remote Access Trojans Since 2016," presumably targeting victim files.
0: We were able to look at some of the metadata and look at the actual payloads attached, um, and from there, it kind of led us to what we call the input rat. So everything here is spawned from the phishing emails, and you know, typically, phishing emails are a dime a dozen. So what brought our attention to this and made us focus on it was the themes. Some of the uh, senders were masquerading as what appeared to be political entities, Mm. and it appeared they were targeting commercial uh, aspects just based on the theme of the message, the subject lines, the body of the messaging. Um, and then who it's actually targeting. So we didn't capture all of the phishing messages themselves, um, but we were able to retrieve the content, um, which led us to kind of the path that we were walking here.
1: Well, let's start with those phishing messages. Uh, What was the content uh, that uh, got the people hooked?
0: One thing I would just kind of call out as anecdotal um, initially and a a caveat is we don't typically look into victim environments. Mm. Um, We observe a lot of things from a network perspective, um, and if you look into our Atlas data set, it's, it's primarily just network based data. Um, so I can't confirm that any victims actually were compromised by this. I see. Um, so we're, we're looking at the outside. Right. We know that it was sent to ex-victims, um, but we don't know uh, the follow through. I see. Um, so, yeah, so I can't I can really go into like, you know, what made them click on it. But essentially the, the phishing emails themselves come at a time where there's a lot of political upheaval various different uh, geopolitical discussions and disagreements going on. And then when you're targeting commercial manufacturing, um, a lot of players are in different countries, right? So they have they have awareness of what's happening in the geopolitical space. Um, so it's definitely something that comes at an opportune time for attackers um, to then go ahead and, and manipulate would-be victims um, by using those themes.
1: So let's dig in some and, and talk about this uh, input rat element of this. Um, describe to us what's going on here.
0: Uh, Sure. So when we first came across this, uh, like I said, we started with the phishing messages. um, And then from there, we were basically able to look at the uh, command and control infrastructure. Um, From there, we found our initial payload, uh, which was directly tied to the phishing email. Um, We started looking at it, uh, analyzing it. Uh, One of our reverse engineers uh, ripped it apart, figured out exactly what it did. Uh, It's fairly trivial as far as a rat goes. There's a lot of rats out there that have a, a whole lot of functionality. This one's not necessarily full function. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty basic in what it does. It's able to profile the system that it's on and then, uh, able to exfiltrate data. Now there's no additional components to it, right? So how an attacker is using it, we don't know. Again, we don't sit in that victim environment. Um, we suspect though, that the rat is used as kind of a backdoor. Um, and then once the attacker has compromised victims, they're then able to use that rat to exfiltrate data that they've manually find on those systems. Uh, But again, that's speculation at this point, since we don't actually see inside that environment.
1: So the rat itself could be a first step in compromising a system.
0: It's definitely part of that. Um, We also saw later versions of it being distributed with Godzilla Loader, which is a fairly common uh, cybercriminal tool that you can purchase in underground forms. Um, And that's basically the stager, right? So phishing email is kind of ground zero. Um, That's not to say they don't use other methods to get on a network, but phishing emails is definitely the one that we observed. Um, Then we saw the input rat that was distributed directly, um, but then later on we saw the Godzilla loader as kind of the intermediary. So maybe they didn't have enough success distributing input rat directly, and so they then used Godzilla loader because it's it's a paid-for service. Um, They're fairly good about getting around security and things like that in victim environments for successful infections. And what, what are some of the
1: details? What do, what do we need to know about Godzilla Loader itself? Um, so we didn't
0: spend a whole lot of time uh, analyzing Godzilla Loader just because there's a plethora of sites out there and other security researchers that have done ample mm-hmm. research dissecting Godzilla Loader. Gotcha. I guess the main things to to note is that they are using it, right? So um, any number of research blogs out there could go through the details of stripping Godzilla Loader apart. Um, the important thing to note here, and I think kind of lending to attribution a little bit, is... It's a cybercriminal tool purchased in the underground form. Um, that's not to say that APT-type actors don't use it. Um, we have seen more of that, um, but it is cybercriminal world. So it could lend credence to the fact that these guys are organized crime. Um, they could be just criminals some moonlighting. Um, we, we don't really necessarily know who they are, but the fact that they're finding Godzilla Loader and that it's typically purchased in underground forms is, is of note.
1: So, uh, one of the things you noted in your research was this evolution of input rat and how that uh, allowed you to to sort of re- rewind the clock and see how far back this might might have gone. Um, can you take us through that evolution and, and how the functionality changed over time?
0: The changes themselves aren't super important, right? It doesn't really change the functionality and the capabilities of the rat itself. Hmm. Uh, what we noticed over time is evolution of how they're distributing the bot. Um, as well as how it gets installed. Um, So going chronologically, we could start with sample one, which goes all the way back to 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, The third sample that we have listed in our chronological order here is the one that we first started with. Um, So we started doing binary analysis. Uh, We did a bunch of different searches using a bunch of different tools. We have our internal Mauer sandboxing system. Uh, We have millions of samples that are uh, categorized and stored. Um, We also have some partnerships with other vendors that have sample sources. So we were able to basically do some searching. Um, We created some ER signatures looking for particular aspects of it. We looked at the actual command and control, looking for additional samples. Um, And through the the course of analyzing all the different binaries, we found a couple of different ones. Um, And then we found even more looking at the actual infrastructure itself. Um, So we found a total of five binaries. Um, at least the ones that we analyzed. Mm -hmm. I think we have hundreds of them at this point. Um, But the ones that we pulled out were ones that had differences or were tied together through the infrastructure, which is kind of why we have five samples listed here. So starting with the first one, um, I think the most notable difference between sample one and sample two is that they changed the, uh, the order of the commands that they use. So the command options are basically API calls, in a Windows environment that it's using to perform various functions. right? Mm-hmm. So here we we see it reading files. It can write files, it can delete files, um, and basically do some system scanning. Um, the way that they call this particular API the read file changed from the first sample to the second sample. So that's, that's one change. Um, the other thing is the infrastructure itself has an overlap. Um, and then when we actually go and we match these binaries together, um, there's a bunch of different functions in a, in a particular binary. Um, and so the more matches you have, the more likely it is. It's the same compiled code, although typically when you have a new variant, there's going to be functions that stand out as different. Um, that's that's pretty atypical when you're uh, analyzing samples over time. That read call is the main thing that changed, and then also the persistence method. So the first sample would create a Windows service. That was kind of how it in- installed its persistence. It was called Office Update Service, um, and that's fairly common for a lot of different binaries. Uh, That is the second most common. The first most common would be creating a a Windows registry key to auto run upon booting your system up. And that's the change that happened between the first sample and the second sample. So sample one, we have a a Windows service that's created, and then sample two, it actually creates a uh, persistence key in the Windows registry to run upon system boot up. Moving into sample three, not a whole lot changed from one to the other. The biggest change here was gonna be the, the actual file name. So we went from something called safeapp.exe to neutralapp.exe. The whole command options uh, was persistent from sample two to sample three. We didn't do any diff matching, uh, like for diff differential matching with this sample because this was our ground zero sample. Um, but it does match a lot of the other other ones as well. Um, so then moving on to sample four, um, we can look at, uh, again, some of the same command and control infrastructure overlap Uh, persistence with the naming of the sample, neutralapp.exe as well. Um, And then you can see that we matched 33 of the particular functions with 13 unmatched. Um, In this particular sample, sample four is when they started doing a little bit of anti-analysis. So some of the API names, the various strings within the binary are obfuscated. Now, they're not using a, a super sophisticated method for this. They're just using a simple XOR with an 8-byte key. It's fairly simplistic, but it's enough to get around some of the different uh, pattern matching uh, signatures that we might have. For instance, if we were looking for a particular string or a particular function call using Yara, and we were just looking at regular ASCII text, if they did this obfuscation with XOR, we're not going to see that unless we know that key, and then we can basically decode those before we do our pattern matching. Hmm. Um, And then in sample five, we basically, the the biggest change here is that more of those strings and more of those API calls were obfuscated. Um, And you'll note that the matching function um, diminishes slightly. So we have 27 unmatched as opposed to the 13. Um, And that's just because they're adding that additional obfuscation. So things aren't going to match one for one.
1: Yeah. And so when you look at how it changed over time... Is there a story there, you know, behind the scenes of what their goals were, what they were trying to do? Was it, I mean, it seems to me like the obfuscation is is the main uh, thread through this. Is is that accurate?
0: Yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest change. Um, the biggest change that's really going to impact the rat itself. Um, the changes of the various read calls, the change of the persistence mechanism, those aren't really going to change a whole lot. I mean, those both of those are fairly common as far as persistence mechanisms, and they're both really common places for security applications and tools to look for uh, malicious apps. Um, so that's not really gonna impact the bot itself. It's not gonna really impact their viability to stay on a system. The obfuscation though is what's gonna enable them to get around a particular uh, set of scanning rules. Um, so that's probably gonna be the biggest change that occurred between the variations. And honestly, if you look at the actual evolution, it's fairly trivial. I mean, there, there are minor increments of code updates. It could just be that over time, they figure new ways to do things or, Hey, why aren't we obfuscating? Let's go ahead and add that in. Um, so I don't think it's like super significant and they're not using a very complex algorithm, but it is sufficient to deny pattern matching for certain things.
1: And so what's your perception of the sophistication of these actors? Um, and I guess a second part of that would be for the type of information they're looking for, um, is sophistication necessary?
0: I wouldn't say that they're highly sophisticated. I mean, when you compare them against other threats, it, it seems like more the run-of-the-mill stuff to me. And is it necessary? I don't know. Um, when we look at a lot of uh, potential APT actors, for instance, um, a lot of times they don't necessarily care about stealth, right? They want to get into the system. They're going to exfiltrate as much as they can, and they, they're going to get out. Um, a lot of the tools they use, Poison Ivy and Jrat, they're very noisy, right? So it's not like they're trying to evade stuff, but if they accomplish their goal of exfiltrating certain data... Uh, mission accomplished, right? So I don't think they have to be highly sophisticated. Um, It could be a highly sophisticated actor using primitive tools to do something like this. Maybe they're doing it uh, moonlighting or or a side project or something like that. They did go to the effort of using Godzilla Loader, which means they did drop some funds in order to acquire uh, the use of that software. Um. So there is some aspect here where they're paying to increase their sophistication slightly or increase their success rate. But I, I don't necessarily think that these guys are super highly sophisticated uh, in that sense.
1: So let's talk about the attribution. Take us through uh, what what your conclusions are.
0: Just kind of based anecdotally here, and a caveat before we go into this, we're basing this largely on information presented to us and available online, right? Any actor anywhere could basically masquerade this data. They could create fake entries. They could create fake email addresses. So um, take kind of what we've written here as a grain of salt. Um, We've, we've, you know, appropriately caveated that, hey, we believe this based on what we've found. But that's uh, saying, you know, an an attacker could go in and create all these personas. They could create these fake Twitter accounts, these fake Facebook accounts, um, all to make them look more legitimate. So that said, we can dive into this. Basically, what we first looked at is the initial infrastructure in that phishing message. Um, from there, it led us to input RAT. And then we started looking at who registered them, looking at their email addresses, the phone numbers within various who is information. Um, and then we started doing some chain analysis. So Uh, whether whatever graphing tool you might be used to is it analyst notebook or maltego or something like that we started plotting these various entities out um, highlighting their names their addresses their phone numbers their email addresses and then from there pivoting to additional infrastructure that they might have registered Um, and that led us to additional samples of input rat Um, and so through basically a series of looking at different domains looking at the ip addresses and the hosting uh, as well as the registrar data we were able to basically find uh, these five different samples, as well as a bunch of different infrastructure that matches our original phishing, phishing message uh, theme, like the MFA events. Um, we saw U.S. Embassy report. Um, so these same themes are things that we identified. Uh, on top of that, we had some more generic stuff like Google and Microsoft. Um, so some of the different campaigns and themes that I've seen over the years working these types of threats. A lot of times you'll have actors that zero in or home in on a specific AO that they're really interested in, but oftentimes you also have them do more generic stuff. So, a lot of the crime actors, they kind of they shoot shotgun uh, shots out, right? They want to hit wide. They don't necessarily care about necessarily specific entities, but sometimes they will drill down a little bit further if they're look maybe they're. Uh, contracted out by somebody, or they have a, a particular interest in a certain financial organization, then they might single them out to go a little bit further. But a lot of times they'd like to try to go wide, get as many people compromised as possible because they're going to get a better return of their investment and their time. Um, so we'll often, even though we might see some targeted activity, we'll also see the stuff that kind of targets wide with Google, the Microsoft, uh, various webmail providers and things like that. Through the course of all of our investigation and uh, in tying all this together, we came across three particular uh, entities, and again, they could be made up, we don't know, um, but based off of what we were able to see, they all have a, a kind of a Russian flavor to them. Whether that's APT or crime, we at this point, we don't know. Um, we basically just prevented the facts of our findings um, and then highlighted the differences and what led us to believe that it might be a Russian-type nexus.
1: Is this still an active campaign, and uh, and if so, how can folks protect themselves against it?
0: Yeah, so uh, as of yesterday, I was just talking to the researchers that are are primarily responsible for this, and we were still seeing some of the activity. The command and control infrastructure for at least one of them is still live. Um, We've been looking at uh, contacting various ISPs to see what we can do to try to help uh, eliminate some of this malicious activity. But right now, the biggest thing that you can do really is, is practice good hygiene, right? Don't open emails from untrusted senders. If something looks a little bit suspicious, forward it to your support desk and ask them for guidance. A lot of these threats, I'd say probably the number one threat impacting organizations going back uh, how many years, I don't know at this point, um, is email. Attackers like to include malicious attachments. They'll include links. Um, The link might appear to be benign, but the actual hyperlink text itself is leading you to a malicious site. Uh, So really just uh, practice a little bit of caution. Uh, when you're when you're opening up an email, ensure it's from somebody you trust. If you're uncertain, reach out to them separately. Ask them, hey, did you send this to me? When you are opening things, uh, just ensure you're not actually executing a binary. If you open up a document and it has macros or some type of script content inside, don't enable that without getting a verification of where that came from. Um, so there's a lot of just general use practices that can be done to help eliminate this threat. Uh, one of the things that we do here is all of the indicators of compromise that we see, as well as signatures for the particular activity, we include those into our systems so that uh, when, when we're blocking the activity, whether it's via our Atlas intelligence feed or one of our systems like APS, we're pushing all of these IOCs and um, what we call policy or a signature to our systems so that we can then block the malicious activity.
1: Our thanks to Richard Hummel from Arbor Network's ACERT team for joining us. The research is titled, Input Actors Utilize Remote Access Trojans Since 2016, Presumably Targeting Victim Files. You can find it in the blog section of the Arbor Network's website. And now, a message from CyberBit.